Hello and welcome to the Trading Places episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies. Yeah, we're going to the movies. We are doing a whole little mini season of watching movies with a business and finance theme. We are going to be doing this throughout the early weeks of 2021, but There is a Christmas movie on the list. It is called Trading Places. It is Christmas. And so as a little sneak preview, the very first episode of the season is going to be Trading Places. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. I'm here with Yinka Adegoke of Quartz. Hi. Yinka, how old were you when you first saw this movie and what country were you living in? Oh, that, that, one of those questions I can say confidently, Nigeria. <laughs> I was in my teens. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> Young teens. We are going to be talking about Trading Places, the classic John Landis 1983 Eddie Murphy vehicle starring Dan Aykroyd, Denim Elliott and Jamie Lee Curtis and all manner of other folks, including Al Franken, weirdly enough. And we are going to be talking in a very jumpy, aroundy, discursive way about the movie, its acting, its themes, the money, whether it's realistic. We are not going to be running through the plot in any kind of useful way. So if you haven't seen the movie, go see the movie first and then listen to us. Or if you basically remember it, you can listen to this. But if you have never seen the movie, you will not understand a word that we're saying. It is not a great spoiler to admit that we all like this movie. It's a good movie, so it's worth seeing. It is worth renting. Go ahead and do that, and we will find you on the other side of Slate Money Goes to the Movies. So, Yinka, you specifically requested that we talk about trading places when we were chatting on the phone, and I was like, we're doing this season. You're like, I need to do trading places. We have to do it, Felix. So, explain. Explain to it me. is the best business movie we ever made. Every everyone knows this. Everyone knows this. the best business movie about Wall Street specifically. Is it the best Christmas movie of all time? Uh, you know, some of us have taken it to be a Christmas movie. It's not rewatching it again all these years later. I'd kind of forgotten some of the unedited bits are probably not suitable for family viewing. <laughs> <laughs> a few things I had completely forgotten. <laughs> Wait, had you forgotten like the boobs? Completely, you know, like teenage me obviously enjoyed this immensely, but but, uh, grown up me, dad's me is kind of like, well, I'm not where the kids are here. There's a bunch of nudity. There's a bunch of swearing. There's a bunch of like extremely inappropriate racism. And there's a lot of problematic stuff in this movie, as you would expect from the director of Animal House. This was, I think, the follow up. Was this John Landis's follow up to Animal House? This is an amazing run of movies, actually. John Landis did in his 20s and early 30s. Animal House, The Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, and Trading Places, all within the space of five years. And then later, Coming to America. And then later, Coming to America. In in between the Thriller video. Yes. And then he did the Thriller video, and then it was all over at that point. But it's an amazing run of movies. It reminds me a little bit, actually, of Oliver Stone, who sort of does Platoon and then he follows it up with Wall Street. Like somehow if you do Mm -hmm. something which has this big, broad mass appeal, you can say, I want to make a movie about derivatives trading. And everyone goes, yeah, of course, let you do whatever you want. 
Right. But derivatives trading in the 80s was exciting, <laughs> like visually extraordinarily exciting in a way that not quite the same today. Yes. If, if derivatives trading was actually exciting, Anna, there would be more than one movie about derivatives trading. No, but you talk to people who were like commodities traders in the 80s and they talk about those like scrums where you yeah. literally had people screaming at each other. Let's get into it. So this is the first question which we have to ask. There's that classic scene at the end of the movie where the trader gets carried out of the pit, like basically semi-conscious to get screamed at by the Duke brothers. Are you saying that's not complete artistic license, that there's some kind of reality there? I mean, I'm not sure if somebody got dragged out unconscious, but (laughs) definitely that is, again, I did not experience that. (laughs) I was one when this film was made. But when I've talked with people who did, this is what they always point to and say, yeah, this is actually one of the more accurate depictions. Yeah, everything I've read about it says it's pretty much the same. Every all the old the old guys are all kind of like, yeah, yeah, this is what it was like. It was raw, it was real, there's blood, sweat, tears, the whole kind of drama. And the kind of thing that I guess makes people want to come to New York and work on Wall Street or Chicago commodities or whatever. That's one of the reasons why I also really like this movie, because there's that scene where they're walking into what I actually think was the World Trade Center. Yes. And the Dan Aykroyd character is is describing what they're going to be walking into. Favorite scene. And he describes it as like the most exciting thing you can possibly imagine. And what you see, it, it's both of these things. It's this like almost animalistic capitalism at its most raw. But at the same time, it is really exciting. And I feel like that kind of gets at that contradiction in a way that a lot of other films, I think, are a little bit more lazy. Think big. Think positive. Never show any sign of weakness. Always go for the throat. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. Nothing you have ever experienced can prepare you for the unbridled carnage you're about to witness. The Super Bowl, the World Series, they don't know what pressure is. In this building, it's either kill or be killed. You make no friends in the pits and you take no prisoners. One minute, you're up half a million in soybeans and the next, boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? Yeah, but we gotta kill them, motherfucker! We gotta kill them! That scene is my favorite. That piece of dialogue, I should say, is just like my favorite. It's just the way he lays it all out. And for me, like I, I watched this, I can't remember how old I was, 30 years ago, whatever. And I hadn't, li- you know, I visited America once, but I hadn't lived here. Didn't really fully get it. And I was like, oh, whoa, if he loses money, his kids don't go to college. <laughs> this was just such a weird concept right. to me. Because everywhere I lived, college was free. Essentially, it was a question whether you could get in. But in America, they you have to pay to go to college and you have to work really hard and make a lot of money. And it's kind of like it really explained America to me then. And it kind of still does. It's kind of still relevant. You could make all this money in America, but, but you could also lose it. And there is no safety net. The only difference is that instead of the World Trade Center, we now have Robin Hood. You definitely lose it all in Robin Hood, right? <laughs> But no, but I I do think this film also, it it gets at this very complicated relationship that America does have with wealth. And I think it's notable that the film is set mostly in Philadelphia. So they kind of all these scenes of like Americana, Ben Franklin, this idea of the scrappy upstart who, you know. Especially the intro, the, the first scenes. Yep. Beautifully done. The credit sequence. Let's talk about the credit sequence because it's actually very different in the sort of tonally from the rest of the movie. The the movie, it's got a huge amount of forward momentum. It's not a short movie, but it swings past very quickly. There's broad comedy. There's there's a whole bunch of, it's very tightly written. 
But the opening credits is basically just this incredibly loving portrait of working class Philadelphia over the overture to the marriage of Figaro by Mozart. And you're like, huh, what are we doing here with Mozart and working class Philadelphia when neither of those things are obviously related to, well, derivatives trading for starters. But they show you the extremes, right? Because it's not just the working class Philadelphia they show you. They also show you the wealthy parts of Philadelphia right next door to poor kids playing basketball without a proper hoop. But it's, it's just beautifully done. And I, and I love the way it sort of goes all the way right into the, our first scene with Dan Aykroyd waking up for breakfast. <laughs> With his valet, his butler, his gentleman's gentleman, yes. whatever you want to call it. And he's making orange juice. Yes. <laughs> you make a really good point, Felix. It's almost out of sync with the rest of the movie, with the pace of the rest of the movie. And yet, it lays it all out for us. Especially for those of us who don't know Philadelphia that well or, or don't fully understand what we're about to get into. I have to say, I don't fully understand why it's set in Philadelphia. I would have thought, if this is a derivatives trading thing, like, Chicago. set it in Chicago, right. possibly set it in New York. What is it doing in Philadelphia? Do we understand that? I really think it's so they could have those scenes of Americana. Because I think this is a film about American myths. There's no Americana in Chicago? There is, but it's not Philadelphia. <laughs> You're not going to have Ben Franklin. You have a like a men's club that says liberty and justice for all on it. Right, right. You know, I think that's why they did it. It is a lot more conservative. You do have the extremes of, I guess, put it this way. It's always ludicrous to think that a young executive at a trading house is going to have a butler with a chauffeur-driven limousine and get around and be all sort of like hoity-toity like that. But if it would happen anywhere, I suppose it would happen in Philadelphia. <laughs> That's actually true. Yeah, but, but I think like this is, I mean, obviously the film really is about this moment in the 80s where you you are seeing the rise of finance, the rise of this like extreme wealth at the same time that you're seeing very, very visible poverty as you're seeing more and more homeless people on the street at that time. And that's clearly what this film is about. I, I think it's notable that, you know, it's basically a Prince of the Pauper update. Prince and Pauper was written during the Gilded Age. I think that's clearly what it's getting at. So... We have this introduction of the princes and the paupers. We have Denim Elliott polishing up, ironing the newspaper or whatever it is he's doing while the kids are playing basketball with no hoop. And we meet our protagonist, Lewis, Dan Aykroyd, and he's kind of a dick. And this is one of the things which really fascinates me about this movie. You have two clear bad guys. You have three clear people with hearts of gold, one of whom is a hooker. And then in the middle, you have the actual main character who winds up on the side of good rather than evil, I guess, but kind of despite himself, he's just not a good person. And that one fascinates me. Right. But I think that in storytelling in general, you want to show an arc, you want to show a change. Do you think he changes? I mean, he becomes less actively mean. <laughs> but no, but it's, it, it is interesting because he is the center of the film, even though clearly the real center of the film is Eddie Murphy. Yeah. I mean, he has all the best lines, Dan Aykroyd. He has all the best lines and Eddie Murphy has the best quips. He has the best comebacks. Eddie Murphy in the 80s, he was a god, right? He stole scenes just by being there. And really because, you know, you hadn't had that kind of combination of bad boy slash comedian slash good-looking, well-dressed, well-put-together, 
all that all together in this one package. And then just hit after hit after hit, right? 48 hours, Fading Places, Beverly Hills. But in this movie, here he is alongside Dan Aykroyd, who's already an established star. Sure, he was a, on a bit of a wane, but I mean, it doesn't outshine him, but he completely, you know, holds his own and they make this into something really special. Yeah, and his character, it's interesting because he similarly goes through a change, but the change is almost like like the real him that would have existed. Exactly. It's almost like that experiment works, right? Exactly. Right, right. Well, the experiment clearly works, right? It's, it's clear who wins the bet. It's clearly a question of nature rather than nurture. Eddie Murphy takes, what, about like less than a day to start worrying about his carpets. His furniture. <laughs> <laughs> His Persian rug. His Persian rug. From Persia. From Persia. (laughs) And Dan Aykroyd takes like less than two days to start like pulling guns on people and trying to shoot himself, which again, like you have to treat all of this with a certain amount of poetic license. No, it's a myth, you know. It is a Christmas movie after all. It's not meant to be full to the brim with verisimilitude, but you do have that very quick and very simple oh yeah, it's obvious the bet has been decisively won on this side rather than that side. And that happens very quickly. I feel like the bet is a bit of a MacGuffin, really, that the movie isn't really about the bet, but I might be wrong. I want to know what you guys think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the bet is important because obviously the entire film, you're just like, you know, these these people are horrible for playing with these people's lives. But then when it turns out it's for one dollar, it just speaks to this idea of what I do think the film is trying to get at, that you have this new wealthy class that doesn't value other people's lives. I clearly mm. think that's mm. what, I mean, the Dukes, if you, if you pay attention, I was noticed this because I was watching it very closely because I knew we were going to talk about it. They have a photo of Ronald Reagan on their desk and a photo of Richard Nixon on their desk. <laughs> were you like pausing the movie? No, I, I made so many notes. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. So the Dukes, we should mention this, the Dukes are clearly based on the Hunt brothers who 
cornered the market in silver. And there's this line towards the end of the movie when they start buying up all of the frozen concentrated orange juice where someone's like, they're trying to corner the market. Hey, hey, the Dukes are trying to corner the market. They know something. I can feel it. Let's get in on it. Two hundred, take them. Two hundred. Not yet. Almost. Two twenty. Take them. Two hundred and nine. Yeah. Yeah. Got them. One thirty-nine. One forty. Yeah. Today. Today. Let me have the stand. Now. Yeah. Sound on in April of one forty-two. Anna is the finance pro here. What does it mean to corner the market? And is that bit realistic? I mean, I think that's obviously somewhat extreme. It's it's not that you wouldn't necessarily have someone who's essentially trying to buy up a significant portion of futures contracts in a particular commodity, but the level of buying you're seeing at the time, and especially the, the difference in price that occurs, has almost never happened. I don't think it's ever happened. They sell at 142 and they buy at 29 cents. Like you, you don't see that type of movement. But although, although, can I say this is actually my favorite thing about the whole movie is the the slogan. We we all know the slogan about buy low, sell high, but for reasons which I just love, and I don't know whose idea this was, the great grand finale, they sell high and buy low. Yep. They sell before they the buy. Yep. They, they go short and then they cover their short. And then that's just like this little piece of financial cleverness. It's mm-hmm. slipped in there and you're like, ooh. That's clever. I love that. I love that little tweak. Most normal screenwriters would have been like, well, buy low and sell high. No, they decided to sell short, cover the short, which again, like in terms of being realistic, number one, there's no way that someone can get onto the floor of the futures exchange with like a $40,000 check from a hooker with a heart of gold. I was going to ask about that. $42,000 in T-bills. And suddenly get like a $300 million margin account on the basis of that. But even if you kind of allow them that, as you say, like there's a lot of over-dramatization there, but I do think there is something real underneath it, which is this thing that happened in the 70s and I think even the 80s, that people would try, mostly fail, but definitely try to corner the market. Yeah. And cornering the market was a thing that happened back then, and it hasn't happened that I can recall in decades. I think markets all just do big and liquid right now. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that's something that you could possibly do with just how technology has changed, how trading has changed. Yeah, I don't think that's that's possible. But back in the day, it was a thing. And basically what it means is buying up so much of whatever the commodity is, whether it's silver or orange juice or whatever, that you control the price. And the controlling of the price and the manipulating of the markets, like that was all just part of the game, right? This is the other thing that really struck me rewatching this movie is that our heroes, the good guys, are the ones who are manipulating the markets, who are feeding false information to the Hunt brothers, who are insider trading on on material non-public information. And those are the good guys who are doing all of that. Well, no, but this is the actually also fascinating thing. What they did and what the Duke brothers did was not actually illegal at the time. <laughs> it was late. It was only in 2010 that it became illegal to trade based on insider information from the government. And it was actually called the Eddie Murphy rule. It, like, it literally took the financial crisis to make this illegal. This kind of stuff would have been illegal on the stock market for 
ever since 1930, whenever the hell, and the creation of the SEC. But the SEC doesn't govern derivatives markets. The CFTC does, which is part of the Agriculture Committee in the Senate. It's, it's completely different. And it's the Wild West. But isn't the principle the same, though, Felix? Exactly. The principle is exactly the same. <laughs> Agreed. But also going back to what I think you were trying to maybe get at, too, the idea that our heroes are manipulating the market. And again, I think this speaks to this like weird relationship that America has with wealth and, and especially the quick accumulation of wealth that on the one hand, it's often the way that films end is that somebody becomes extraordinarily wealthy. But then at the same time, wealthy characters in films are kind of suspect. And there's always this idea too, that if someone's extraordinarily wealthy, usually it's because something they did something wrong, wasn't through honest means. And to a certain extent, it's the same thing here. Yeah, but they got one over the really bad guys. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah of course. You're all very happy when they end up on the island. <laughs> you can even hear it in their whole their entire hubris towards the end of the movie. We've been on the exchange since he was set up. And right, this is, right, this right. is ours. We own this exchange and all that stuff. And yeah. It's, that's like, yeah, all right, serves them right. No, exactly. And because I think it's also like, America's also this weird relationship with hereditary wealth. And I think that's kind of what the Dukes clearly are supposed to represent. And that's what makes them suspicious. Although it's also what presumptively makes Lewis suspicious, right? The third. Right. Lewis Winthrop, the third. The third. <laughs> They're always the third. third. Yeah. <laughs> Who talks like Catherine Hepburn for some unknown reason. And he has to kind of get thrown out onto the street and hit rock bottom in basically what in order to overcome the blinkers of his privilege and wealth this highly privileged guy who went to harvard and sailed into this top job but apparently has no like family or support group whatsoever no exactly and, and his, his job mainly seems to be looking at payroll <laughs> like that seems to be his primary job and gets in the market <laughs> just gets in and then saying pork bellies pork bellies no but this is the other thing which i wanted to ask you anna is like the the thing that he does at the beginning of the movie, which is then echoed by the thing that Eddie Murphy does a few scenes later, is bottom tick the market. You know, he's like, wait another five minutes and you can buy it for a dollar less and then you buy it there and then you make more money. The Duke brothers are very, very happy about that. So you just made us another million dollars. Is that realistic? Is that what trading was at the time? It was just like trying to work out exactly, it's basically market timing. I mean, definitely there was a lot more market timing just for the, the nature of how trading worked. I mean, obviously, everyone can't be doing that exactly the same. You know, it can't work for everyone at the same time. But I do think, I mean, obviously, this is a simplistic yeah. representation of how that would work. But I think in general, there was a, way more than now this sense of, especially I would say probably in some of those markets, this idea that you, you really could actually time certain things. And certain people, like Stevie Cohen is famous for being able to trade the tape. Right. You know, you see how the numbers are moving and you just have this feel for like when to buy and when to sell. And it's this kind of mystical thing. Yeah. And even back in the day, the like technical analysis, we were like the dead man's cross and the hidden shoulders of some stupid chart. And then the dying hanging <laughs> man stuck. formation. Exactly. And it's like, oh, this is clearly going to go down because it's, you know, so I mean, I think a lot of that kind of, you know, slightly ridiculous, though also slightly fun stuff has all really to a certain extent, gone away. It's been taken over by the algorithm, so. Exactly, exactly. As I said, like, if they tried to make this film now, it would just be, like, people, like, looking at their Bloomberg. <laughs> so the modern-day equivalent that sprung to mind when I was watching this of the Duke brothers going bankrupt and losing their company was 
John Corzine going bankrupt with MF Global. You remember after he was governor of New Jersey, he set up his own boutique investment bank and put on this can't lose trade involving something to do with like European sovereign bonds or something. I can't even remember what it was. And it blew up spectacularly and he lost everything, which just kind of goes to show that it's not as completely ludicrous as it maybe seems to someone who doesn't right. understand the market. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, again, obviously it is an exaggeration, but at the same time, you certainly did have instances where people lost their seat on the exchange because they couldn't meet their margin call like that. That was a very real thing. Although they never really get into the nitty gritty, Anna, do they, of like the central clearing counterparty risk and what happens if <laughs> two brothers can't make their margin call. That wasn't nearly <laughs> as exciting as just watching men scream at each other. <laughs> This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So, Yenka, let's move on a little bit and talk about race. Mm -hmm. When you first saw this as a non-American black person, like <laughs> what what on earth did you think? This is the thing, you just it's just like Eddie Murphy's so cool. You don't really get past <laughs> that, right? You, you just <laughs> But you know, so watching it again seriously is like, huh, I don't remember all this. This is this is all this stuff was uh problematic because you 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 see they never actually, do you notice they never actually refer to Eddie Murphy as black. He's always called the Negro, which is kind of like, oh, okay, but it was 1983. Surely, surely <laughs> yeah. we had started to use the word black. <laughs> so the idea is supposed to get across is these guys are so out of the normal world. These people are so ridiculous and so over the top that this is the way they speak. Maybe, yeah, I guess we could believe that and you know and there's a an actual scene where don amici's character uses the n-word maybe he would have actually but it's just like it's not in the spirit of the movie itself if you weren't like doing a hard wall street people getting killed that that kind of thing okay but this just felt like yeah unless it's the way you look at it now at the time this is the way america is and it's a strange place and this is the way they talk and that kind of thing you you, you look at it very differently and especially looking at it kind of with that same understanding of race in america itself the whole place is strange do you think that this is a movie about race is is race like the primary subject is that what the movie is about or not no i, I don't think it is but eddie murphy brings it right Eddie Murphy himself brings that. You can tell they, and I think Philadelphia is like Boston. It's like these cities where that class line is very strongly racial as well. I mean, this is pretty much many cities in America, but the class line is very, very clear. That, you know, black working class people are a key part of the city. So you really get this sense that, okay, if we're going to show working class people, which we need to show because we want to show the other side of the track, we're going to show more black people. And then Eddie Murphy himself, who is he going to hang with? Who are the people who are going to be his friends and who can he bring that kind of thing that Eddie Murphy brings with him so you then you get like the party scene at the house mm -hmm. oh the party scene at the house yeah with with the great Sylvester track playing 
And the highly realistic way in which all of the party guests just decided to get their tits out. Dude, you <laughs> I don't know how much money you've had in your life, but when you have a certain level of money, this kind of thing probably does happen to <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know, though. As we were discussing earlier, I feel like there are so many times in this movie where women take off their top yes, for no yeah. apparent reason. Yes, exactly. That was also a thing of the 80s. I mean, it was probably written into the contract somewhere. Like, you know, you can make I'm a sure. follow-up to Animal House, but there has to be, like, this many seconds of boobage. Otherwise, like, no one's going to watch a movie about derivatives trading. <laughs> and that still goes on. I feel like, wasn't it Halle Berry who got paid an extra million dollars or something to get mm-hmm. her boobs out in Swordfish? This is a little <laughs> pop culture nugget that I have That's buried in true. the back of my head somewhere. <laughs> I guess one of the other things that we haven't totally talked about, but just in terms of race, is that there also is the scene with blackface. Yes, yes. I'll yes. get to that. We really can't avoid mentioning the highly unfortunate blackface scene, which all you can say is, what were they thinking? It's so unnecessary. It's like one of those things before you get to offensive, it's like, but why? He could have been anyone. And it's almost like, nah, it's, there's no need for this. So they're in a train car. Everyone's walking in in some kind of ludicrous getup. Apparently the the bit about the Swede wearing lederhosen was totally ad-libbed because Jamie Lee Curtis had no idea how to do an Austrian accent. She could only do a Swedish accent. Uh, Coming, my child. Join the party. Uh, Let me see now. You would be from uh, Austria. Am I right? No, I am Inga from Sweden. Sweden? But you're wearing lederhosen. Yeah, for sure, from Sweden. Please do help me with my rucksack. Oh, yeah, sure, why not? But they all come in, and then the last of the of Huckster crew to come in is Dan Aykroyd, and what the hell is his disguise? Yeah, he's... Um... So many levels of offense here. So he's got clearly got shoe polish on his face. He's totally painted black and he has some sort of supposedly Rastafarian wig and he does this called Jamaican accent. It's, it's just the whole thing. It's one big why. It's a distraction from the silly humor of Eddie Murphy pretending he's from Cameroon wearing some clothes that are not from Cameroon and, <laughs> and, and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis wearing uh, you know, <laughs> with a Swedish accent. I mean, only Daniel Elliott pulls it off with the Irish priest, which of course you can. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's all silly, but Dan Aykroyd's thing is not silly. It's unnecessary and doesn't make the movie any better or cleverer or funnier. Or... And to your point right at the beginning, it does kind of make the entire movie unwatchable as a family Christmas movie. If, if, you know, if all of the swearing and the nudity didn't do it, like that scene alone would do it. <laughs> it was the 80s, son. <laughs> <laughs> But even if it's not a family movie, and it is clearly not a family movie for all of the reasons we've understood, is it a Christmas movie? Is there is there like a, a Christmas theme here? Or is it, what's with all of the Christmas stuff if it's not a Christmas movie? You know, in a way, I could say it's almost like an Easter movie because the Dan Aykroyd character, it's kind of like he dies and rises again. <laughs> like, I, I definitely think there's I'll, some I'll give potential you Christ stuff going here. Dan Aykroyd is a Christ figure? <laughs> exactly. I did not expect Slate Money to get this religious. <laughs> <laughs> no, it starts at Thanksgiving, doesn't it? It starts around Thanksgiving. It's, you could call it a holiday movie. Mm-hmm. Are we still saying that? Or are we? I'm sorry, we're we back in Trump times. I can't remember. We don't- <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. It, it definitely has a festive feel yeah. to it. Mm-hmm. There's obviously the big New Year's Eve scene on the train. 
which apparently there were like raging New Year's Eve parties on Amtrak in the 80s. Who knew? I miss the 80s. With Joe Biden. <laughs> and Al Franken. And Al Franken. He's That's in right. That That's Talk right. about two senators. <laughs> with, with the bizarre gorilla subplot. <laughs> that also seems unnecessary, but you know. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Yeah, that also got some unnecessary rape jokes that we also got in this. Wait, you don't think gorilla rape is like something which we should put into a family Christmas movie? I actually very much remember watching this film. I'm pretty sure when I watched it, I was probably like six or seven around Christmas time with my family. Yes, <laughs> so, as did I. 80s were a weird time, yeah. I was wondering why I couldn't remember so many slightly more grown-up stuff, and I thought... Perhaps it's because I've always just stopped to watch it on television. And right. may- maybe a lot yeah. of stuff is being taken out. So I kind of, over the years, um, oh, forgotten. This is actually a really good point. That The reason it still has cultural currency, the reason it still resonates, the reason if you mention trading places on Twitter, everyone will know exactly what you're talking about, is because it's shown on the telly. And the version you see on the telly is maybe not the version we just re-watched. Definitely you are not going to see the scenes, the party scenes. That makes a lot of sense. Because <laughs> I was really, I watched it and I was like, what? How did I forget this? This is an important part of my development as a child. And that's super, that's very American in its own way, right? The kind of bowdlerization slash mainstreaming of anything offensive into something which is just mainstream and fun. Well, especially at that time when people watched movies on like regular channels, you know, it was before the rise of like, you know, cable. Well, you also almost wonder why, to your point about the boob scenes and all this stuff and the bad language, almost like, why? I guess it was movies were just made in a different way then. I kind of, I don't have a problem with the language. One of the running jokes in the movie is Eddie Murphy catching himself swearing. And yes, I love yes, that. Yes, and I would yes. not give that up for anything because that's a glorious like thing. That worked. But there definitely is, I mean, this is a period of time where you are getting these like, Animal House is like the prototypical, but like these like frat boy kind of movies and this frat boy sensibility. And you see this in a lot of films at this time. And I think this was just what these guys thought was funny. And they put in everything they thought was funny. Makes perfect sense. And as I mentioned, John Landis was barely 30 when he made this movie. This is not made by some grizzled old film director. Like, I actually have a harder time justifying the quantity of boobage in, like, The Wolf of Wall Street made when Marty Scorsese is, like, 79. That one, you're like, come on, you don't need it. It starts becoming gratuitous. This one, it's like, it was much more of a creature of its time made by a kid. If you give a 30-year-old man a lot of money, you're going to get boobs, probably. (laughs) And a lot of drugs. I mean, you know... That, like, John Landis oh, yeah. and Jim Belushi were not just sitting drinking club soda. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's where the gorilla subplot came from. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize he was that young. That's, that's, that's crazy. So, um, final verdict on Trading Places. Does it hold up? How do we rate it as a finance movie? And finally, the big question which I want to ask is, how does it rate as part of the mythos of finance? This idea of the young trader who manages to finally turn on the evil grizzled money grubbing old timer does is it successful let me go with a general how does it hold up i have to admit it was less of a movie than i remembered right when i really sat down and watched it all the way through but still a ton of fun i still laughed yes i paused at some of the some of the scenes that i i thought were you know not for this time (laughs) and probably some of them were not for that time either to be honest (laughs) (laughs) it's funny sometimes you watch these things as to where you are now and because i am 
the parents of young children now, my first thought is, oh, I'd love to watch this with, oh no, no, no. It's also not a thing where I, I feel I'm going to call my friends around and say, we must watch Trading Places because it's not that much of a great movie either in that, in that sense. I still know all the key lines. I still think Eddie Murphy was as cool as anyone on the planet then. Everyone in finance says it's closest to a great finance movie, but I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Anna. Anna, is this, is this as close as it gets to a great finance movie? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I really do think, outside of obviously the very, very problematic things we discussed, I really do think this is one of like the best finance movies. And I think partly because it's almost like a fairy tale. You know, everything is exaggerated, but I actually feel like it gets at something in that exaggeration. And as I said, I think it gets at both the attraction and why it repels people at the same time in a way that I don't know if I can really think of any other film that does that that well. Excellent. I think that's a perfect sum up. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you very much, Yinka, for joining us here. And we will come back in the new year with more movies about business and finance. But this was a, a sneak Christmas preview, you might say, with a fabulous Christmas movie.